Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Sunday Forum at St. Luke's Episcopal Church in downtown Atlanta. I'm Ed Bacon, the interim rector, and today I'm so excited about having a friend and teacher of mine, Elaine Pagels, to be with us as our guest. She was present for our last indoor gathering, and my colleague Wesley is going to show you some photographs of how packed we were in the parish hall gathering together on Friday night and Saturday morning, listening to her and Dr. Mel Connor. It was an, a marvelous time. And uh, she and I are going to talk about what has happened during this last year of, of the pandemic, what's been going on with her teaching, thinking, uh, any writing she may want to talk about, anything. Uh, and then I have my favorite questions about where are we now and where do we go from here. But for right now, let me just welcome Professor Elaine Pagels. Elaine, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to see you, Ed, and to, and to join your congregation. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you. People were so excited about your presence and everything you taught us that we can. And I do want to tell everybody, if you want to see it, just Google Elaine Pagels at St. Luke's in, at YouTube, and all of her presentation is right there so that you can learn it. It's a very exciting thing. But let me say, just in case people have joined us who don't know Elaine Pagels, she is a professor of religion at Princeton, where she's been for quite some years. She's a historian of religion. Her expertise is in early Christianity and Gnosticism. And let me just read some of her volumes. Uh, she's written The Gnostic Gospels, The Origin of Satan, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, Beyond Belief, The Secret Gospel of Thomas, Revelations of of visions, prophecy, and politics in the book of Revelation, and an amazing memoir, Why Religion, A Personal Story. And in addition to that, in, she's, she's won many awards, but in 2015, uh, President Barack Obama uh, gave her the National Humanities Medal. And uh, it's great to have you here. So what's been going on, Elaine? Thank you. Well, what's been going on is since I last saw you, I mean, we sort of, yes. sort of got back to uh, the East Coast on the last plane before the pandemic. Amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and what's been going on since then is a lot of teaching, a lot of Zoom meetings, a lot of intense interactions with people who live in far distant places. That's been very interesting. And of course, what's happened to the politics of this country, which are, which have been overwhelming this year. Yeah. And you've been in the epicenter of it in Atlanta. In, in Atlanta, uh, yeah. Which is surely as exciting as Washington was this year. Indeed. Uh, for all of us. Atlanta has been very exciting. And one of the things I did want to say before we get into what you've been teaching and, and thinking about, um, people, most people don't know at St. Luke's that after you spoke, then um, you and Alan and I went to two or three of my, what I call holy spots in Atlanta. We went to the King's Graves, we went to Ebenezer, we went to have lunch at Pascal's, and we went to the Carter Center and walked around the beautiful gardens there. So uh, Elaine really did want to have a, a taste of Atlanta um, before she left. So I failed to say that, but yes, Atlanta has been hot. 
uh, both as an epicenter of um, an uptick in militia and uh, uptick in violence, particularly leading up to the Senate uh, runoff that we had. Um, and then uh, all of the contention about the, the presidential election. Oh, that. Yeah. And it was amazing. And we're gonna talk, you and I are gonna talk about the insurrection, um, the January 6th insurrection in a few minutes. And also the, just the phenomenon of um, voter rights, voter suppression battles here and how many people turned out. It was just wonderful. So Elaine, back to you. You've been, when I've talked with you, you've remarked about how much teaching you've been doing. Can you just talk a little bit about your teaching and what you're teaching and the volume and also not only teaching Princeton students, but I think you've been speaking at some other things as well. Well, I've been speaking at other things, but the teaching right now is quite exciting. I invented a class with, with a colleague of mine his name is Jonathan Gold, and um, he's a specialist on Tibetan Buddhism. Um, he translates 11th century Buddhist texts, wow. which is quite, I mean, can you imagine 11th century English texts would be hard enough, but 11th century Buddhist texts. Wow. So we started a course that, that I said, why don't we do a comparison between Christianity and Buddhism and use the, the founders' lives as the, as the template. And so we are teaching that now. We have had a couple hundred students. Um, it's very exciting. And I said to him, he said, well, I don't know anything about Christianity. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I'm totally secular except for, for Buddhism. And I said, well, that's fine because I don't know much about Buddhism except the popular things I hear, like it's about compassion and kindness and so forth. But that's nothing but a superficial impression. So it's been intensely interesting. And the students keep saying, well, you haven't explained to us what, you know, how you compare them. And we say, that's what we're working on. It's not a simple question. Most places, you know, Ed, do not teach comparative religion. And the reason we never did in Princeton, never did. The reason is, that none of us could, could possibly balance a discussion between two different traditions, primarily because we don't know the languages. And I learned in graduate school, I wanted to study Buddhism with a brilliant teacher at Harvard. Right. So I started to take his course, but I realized that if I didn't understand the language, and I couldn't, it was Hindi. Right. And, 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 uh, Indian religions, Indian languages. If I, I, I really couldn't get in there very deeply. And that's just the case. But I was doing Hebrew and Greek and Coptic and Latin. And I couldn't add, you know, so I gave up on it. Right. But he has done all of that. And, and, and it's fascinating to think about how different these are. You know, because people tend to say, oh, all religions really say the same thing. And it's a kind of pious cliche, but they right. don't. Right. They don't at all. Yes. So I let's go a little deeper on that. Can you talk about a couple of three things that have been fun for you to learn or very interesting for you to learn as you've been co-teaching this class? One thing that strikes me is how very different these cultures are, the way they think about a lifetime, right? Your lifetime or mine in the context of, of 
countless previous lives. Yes. In, yes. The, in the context of countless previous uh, future transmigrations into different forms and different bodies. Uh, the way they think about time and history, not at all in a linear way, of course, but as a cyclical process, so that everything that happens now has happened before countless times. And we, you and I, have known each other in previous lifetimes in different forms, in different roles even. Right. And, and so, so thinking about life and death and meaning are very different. Right. And maybe primary to me, I mean, I mean, the Buddha's life and his teaching is all about what happens in his mind. Right. It's about, it starts out his reflections on suffering, and then he goes through an internal process, and he comes to a point of awakening to a new kind of consciousness, as you know, but it's all inside his head. Yes. And, and there's no need for God or any outside supernatural there's i mean that's not even conceived that way so that's one thing that strikes me as very different and the other thing is the idea of cessation of all desire ah. when you when you really achieve liberation from your cravings your desires which are based simply on our human nature desires for food or sex or 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 affluence or success or joy or anything when you free yourselves from all of that you can become a renunciant the highest form of life is that of a of a monk who is homeless and without property and without any needs except his begging bowl i mean and then he's reincarnated I mean, he's, then he ends the lifetimes, the cycle of, of, of different lifetimes. And I think, no, I mean, this is not, to me, an attractive goal. <laughs> right. and such a Westerner. You know? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the, you, I, yeah, just the idea of ending all of your cravings and achieving total tranquility with the world the way it is. Right. And then... Jonathan said last week in class, in his lecture, you must stop imagining, other, some picturing the world other than the way it is. Mm, mm, mm. And I thought, wait a minute. The message of Jesus is all about picturing the world other than the way it is. The kingdom of God is coming. God's justice is coming. Um, Everything is about to be transformed. And imagining the world that way, as you know, allows people to, to imagine things that are different, a world without segregation and slavery, or mm -hmm. a world without uh, war, right? which we don't have, and we've never seen. Right. But we can imagine it. Yes. Making your weapons into plowshares. And that's, that's powerful, I think. Very powerful. Very powerful. So let me go back to a, a popular pious cliche. I love that phrase that you used just now. And that is that the Buddha brain is resonant with the mind of Christ. Are you saying that that really is a cliche? 
and that that kind of resonance is not there in these the founders? I've been saying I've noticed enormous differences. Now, where it really coincides at is in one issue, and we're talking about it this week, and that is the consequence of your actions. Uh, How should you act? So when it comes to the Buddha, as you know, it's about a teaching that karma means what happens to you completely is contingent upon what you do and it will return to you in some form whatever you do okay right that is really the heart of the teaching of jesus in matthew 5 luke 6 and 7 the sermon on the mount the sermon on the plain that literally luke says jesus quotes jesus as saying well in the judgment What you give will be what you get. What you give to other people will be what you get from God. So if you give mercy, and if you give generosity, and if you give more than you need to, you'll get things poured into your your lap, right? Right. If you give hostility, condemnation, uh, violence, you will be judged by God. So... The idea that your acts have these consequences and that consequently it is in your interest and it's also in the interest of what's right to act with compassion and kindness. That is the center. Yeah. And the historical and cultural context and framework for for those is completely different. But that fascinates me. Oh, yes. Well, that is fascinating. Well, uh, um, because there are five million other questions uh, in these short <laughs> period of time, uh, let me just conclude with this beat we're on. Um, do you have any sense of where this is going to lead you? Uh, are you going to m- do more classes in Jesus and Buddha? Or, I mean, it clearly has you engaged. Well, it does, but I can't do it alone. You have to do it with somebody who really knows that tradition well. And we are having fun. I don't know about that. Yeah. I don't know about that. I think I want, I may want to write about something different, but we'll see. see. Okay. So any, any other classes that you want to remark on? Uh, that one is fascinating. Uh, but I can't imagine, Elaine, with your, with your insight about early Christianity and what was really going on, with what we call the Gnostic Gospels. I can't imagine anything that you would teach not being absolutely fascinating. So anything else you want to talk about there? Well, I have a seminar, and I have to tell you, it's called God and Satan, Goddesses and Monsters. And <laughs> we read all kinds of things. We read a lot of um, texts from the religious traditions. So we start with creation stories, but the point isn't just to read old creation stories. The point is to show and demonstrate to the students that these very ancient stories have very present resonances, even now, even if you're not part of the culture that produced it. Mm -hmm. So when you look at Genesis, for example, and I'm talking too much because I want to talk about politics pretty soon. Okay, move on. When you look at Genesis, Genesis 1, one of the messages of many, as you know, is that 
God creates what other what other cultures call the gods. Yes. The sun, the moon, the 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 animals, the world, right? That God creates everything and these are only nature. Yes. And humans stand above that and we are super we are in the image of a supernatural being who's given us dominion over it. And so the consequences of that in terms of the way Westerners treat the climate, treat the world as if it were an inert object or set of resources that we can exploit to the max. That's just one example. Right, yeah. The second story Adam and Eve has everything to do with gender and gender roles and guilt, guilt for, for death, guilt for pain, guilt for, for, for what we suffer. So it's, it's just stunning for the students to sort of suddenly wake up and realize they've been shaped by these very ancient stories in issues about gender. I have a student from Chattanooga, Tennessee a Christian school at which he came out as gay with tremendous agony and difficulty, but he did it. And, and, um, and yet at the same school, he was also told, well, first of all, that the heterosexual issue was huge, but the other one was that they couldn't integrate the school in Chattanooga because of the curse of Ham on black people. Still? Yeah. Now, I think the school has changed its mind in the last 20 years or 30. Right. But that's played its role all the yes. way up to the present. That's just an example. Fascinating. Which, in my mind, does lead us directly to talk about uh, some political things, because part of our context in which we're living and moving and have our being right now is the presence and the powerful presence of Christian nationalism, uh, much of which is based in that guilt story. Let me just tag that and go to my larger question for you to just address. After the election, the presidential election, after the uh, violent transfer of power uh, contested, after the insurrection of January 6th, um, after the runoffs here in Atlanta, Elaine, where are we now? Well, that's a question we're all asking ourselves. Yes. And let me just go back because okay. it was when I was actually at the White House with that wonderful event of the, the National Medal uh, for the Humanities, Another recipient was Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, and we sat up sitting late that night afterwards talking. And she told me that she lived in Atlanta then. Yes. And she went to vote, I think it was 2016. And she was told she wasn't registered. Uh, and she fought all day as a black woman to get her vote counted. And if she hadn't had the education and the um, social uh, capital that she has, right? She couldn't have done it, right? So most people who were black 
could not have done it. Yeah. She, she finally got to vote in Atlanta. That was 2016. So that really, I, I didn't realize the extent of this issue of voter suppression. About the 6th of January, Ed, I got a call. I mean, what a shock that was. It was. I had no idea, ignorant, you know, living here in the East Coast, had no idea um, how virulent the belief was yes. that the election had been stolen. Yes. You know, and that people actually, anyway, we saw that. I mean, it was horrifying to watch, of course. And that evening, I got a call from uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor of Atlantic Monthly. Yes. And he said, Elaine, I was out there all day with those demonstrators at the Capitol. Wow. I was walking with them, and there were these QAnon people, and they were all talking about, about fighting, the, fighting against Satan. Right. Ooh. And they were, they were going to fight for God. And this country. And that's what they were there for. And he said they were absolutely serious and devout, the people he talked to. He was stunned. He said, you've got to write something about this. This is really a use of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Indeed. And it is. It totally is. One of the things that struck me, Ed, when I was writing about Satan, is that when people start thinking about the world divided between good and evil, and we all do. Right. right. Sure. I do. And we you do. do. And okay. how could we not on both sides of that conflict? Indeed. You know? Right. On the right and the left, we're yes. seeing good and evil. Yes. But when we classify a group of people as evil, what it teaches us and what the Bible has taught us is that conflict is non-negotiable. Yes. Because you can't negotiate with evil. So right. you have to annihilate those people. You can't find a common ground because there is none. So characterizing political conflict in this country that way is, is a disaster. It's not that it hasn't always been done. But now it's being done on steroids, so to speak. Right. So as a historian, can you just remind us of the roots of what we're seeing expressed now that go all the way back to early Christianity. I mean, in that sorting out of the canonical gospels versus the quote unquote heretical gospels, wasn't there that kind of mentality operant then that still is operant in the human mind and psyche now? Or am I making that too reductionistic? No, I think, I think when groups are in conflict with each other and they use this context of of course i'm on the right side you're exactly you're not right um then this kind of thing may be inevitable but you asked about the connection between race right yes america yes and christianity and that is a much more recent intersection right It's, it's, uh, it's really quite stunning. You know, I've been looking more at the beginning of the white church and the black church in this country. And one of my students in the seminar 
is biracial and she has gone to white and black churches in North Carolina. And she says, the messages are so different. So from the start, there have been different Christianities and looking, as you know, I'm sure, about the way that Christianity was taught to, to enslave people. Yes, indeed. The whole, the whole reality of slaveholder Christianity in the tradition in which I was raised is powerful, it's baffling, it is persistent, and it is a very different Christianity. And I think I told you, Elaine, that when I came to start my interim rectorate at St. Luke's, St. Luke's had already, and I'm so grateful for this, had already, already chosen as their Lenten study James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree. And it was in reading that as carefully as I could that I was struck with the reality of there being two Christianities. Yes. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Because I know that you and James were friends and colleagues. Well, you know, I thought I knew something about race. And he said to me at one point, after we'd known each other and been friends for like 30 years, you don't know anything about race. And that made me angry, of course. And um, um, he was right. Because I really had no idea of the corrosive and harmful effect of the negative um, uh, contempt hatred, dismissal with which people have been treated because of their race. Yes. I, I never experienced it. Yes. But if you walk around with James Cohn in a town like this, uh, you do see it. And Princeton, actually, Princeton Theological Seminary was a stronghold of uh, Christians who preached that that slavery was endorsed by God and it was right and it should yes. be continued. Yes. And there's nothing wrong with it because yes. those people were Christianized and they were lucky right. to be brought to this country as slaves so that they could become good Christians. And the newer book by James Cone, and you've read yes. the book called um, Said It Wasn't Gonna Tell Nobody comes from a spiritual said I wasn't going to tell nobody but I couldn't keep it to myself what the Lord has done for me but he wasn't going to tell anybody the things he told there and one of them was something his son was shocked to read um, in that book James Cone who, whom I knew as a very courageous outspoken man yes and I gather that some of the political ads for Raphael Warnock's campaign pictured him as a real racist hater. Yes. Right? Indeed. Indeed. For his, his opponent, Kelly Loeffler. Yeah. He was a tough man when he spoke. Right. Um, I know that very well. And, <laughs> but he writes about how when he went to graduate school, he was a good Negro. That is, he never was angry. He was always polite. He was always deferent. He was always smiling. So nobody would get nervous because he was in a white school and in a white church and he was leading the youth group. And his son 
Charles said to me after his death, my daddy was never like that. And I said, well, Charles, you didn't know him when he was like that. Because wow. Charles only knew him as an outspoken critic of white supremacy, which he became. Right. But it was very hard for him. And I thought if it was hard for him with the supportive family he had, it's been impossible for many people not to hide who they are. Yes. Yeah. And hide their reactions to damage. And even then, with James Cone, uh, fighter that he was right. um, for the gospel as he saw it, for justice, he was harmed himself by that. And it took a long time of knowing him to see how that harm manifested itself. Yeah. Um, in somebody that courageous. Right. It, it showed me how corrosive racism is. Yeah, yeah. Do you sense at Princeton that since the murder of George Floyd and the protests, that we're in a different chapter in doing some racial reckoning in this country? What's different is that you didn't see a lot of white people demonstrating before. Right. There was a protest against that murder in Princeton. Yes. Which was a very white town. Right. There were thousands of people flooding the streets. And 90% of them were white. There were some people from different countries with different colored skins. There were some African-Americans, but 90% of the people were saying that George Floyd was somebody they cared about. Mm, mm, mm. And I don't think that was true before. I see. I don't, it wasn't the case in previous protests. That was so stunning when you saw what was happening in Washington, D.C. Yes. Yes. It was true there, San Francisco, New York, Chicago. I think it's really an awakening of many more people just because they could witness in real time. Yeah. Uh, yes. Torture and death. You're right. Right. Um, then connect that because I think that there have been such stirrings of hopeful energy because to a new degree, white people were waking up to the horrors of racism and in that nine minute horrible murder. Um, and then connect that with a literally a, a convention of white supremacists in January 6 in Washington, DC. The insurrection there was a totally different kind of expression. Are, so yes. we have two Americas is that what we have, Elaine? Well, yes, maybe more, but certainly it was so different and they would try to make equivalent the demonstrations. But right. the demonstrations I saw from Washington DC to Chicago, all over the, that nobody was killed. Yes, yes. As far as I can remember, not a right. single person. Right. And, and the, 
hostility and the rage yes that was that was evinced in in the attack on the capital yes and just as when i wrote the book on on satan i realized that satan is is not the outside enemy satan is the person close to you who betrays you i thought for the followers of donald trump nancy pelosi was not the problem it was mike pence who was going to certify the vote uh, uh, against the man uh, who had pledged loyalty to him uh, as far as uh, trump saw not to the constitution but to him i see and pence was the one they really wanted to get i see it was it was so vicious i mean yes. i was really afraid if somebody had had machine guns and it just seemed likely that a lot of people were going to die that day. Right. I mean, some people did, of course, but it wasn't a slaughter. Right, right. That what about you, Ed? What did you think? Well, number one, I was shocked. I was here in Atlanta. We had recorded, video recorded all of our uh, evening epiphany service. Uh, as soon as I realized that this was really going on, this, this was... A, a riot. This was an insurrection. And, you know, I worked for a senator one summer and uh, when they were banging through the windows of what I consider to be sacred territory. And um, I, I finally woke up that this is real. Then I called my colleagues, we huddled on the phone and all of a sudden we reconstructed the service and all of a sudden I was going downtown to preach a sermon in real time rather than using a video. Um, that was one thing. We just, it totally upended our plans. Then as I've mentioned to you before, I've tried to read everything I could about what led to that day. I knew instinctively that it was not uh, only to be credited to Donald Trump. There was something else going on and there was this remarkable, wonderful New York Times in-depth article about where all the money had come from, both deep pockets and also just donate button websites uh, for travel for people to go to, to Washington on January 6th and also equipment. And a lot of, and the equipment was not only uh, these rifles, these horrible AK-47s, um, assault stuff, military, but also grappling hooks and climbing stuff to scale this really, I, I, I'm such a patriot. Well, I call it a temple of democracy. No, no, but it is But did they have AK-47s? I mean, could they have opened fire? Yes, they could have. Absolutely. I was thinking that was going to happen. It was. I joking. was afraid that was going to happen too. And they had these very sophisticated stun guns on walking sticks. I mean, the guy who had his feet up in Pelosi's office, and then and and it was a varied group of people, no doubt about it. I mean, there was a young woman who stole Pelosi's laptop and was trying to sell it to Russia. Um, however, the second level for me, and then I want to be quiet and hear you talk, um, was that there were there was another article in New York Times that said um, 
sociologists of religion are saying that you cannot understand the insurrection of January 6th unless you understand the power of Christian nationalism in the United States. And all of a sudden I thought, oh my gosh. So I read a few things about Christian nationalism. And I think in our friendship, I've told you what I did in terms of soul searching after the Mother Emanuel uh, Charleston massacre and coming to terms with the presence of Confederate consciousness within my own consciousness and in the religion that I was handed. Uh, I inherited a religion uh, when, I, when I was a kid. And then I began to see the connections between Confederate consciousness, which is another form of slaveholder Christianity where you bless the, and a uh, divinely uh, created business of slavery horrible 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 and then you connect it with christian nationalism so i'm going through all of that and uh, a friend of ours uh, yours and mine diana butler bass says that so many of us are re-adjudicating our histories our cultures and sorting out that we've got some great things in western culture and we have this slavery business and, and, and Isabel Wilkerson in her new book, Cast, talks about how slavery and caste is the very fabric out of which America has been created. So I'm sorting through all of that in a deep, deep disturbed way. It's very interesting. I was talking to Randy Balmer, and if you, if you know Randy, he's written a major book on Christian evangelicalism, and you know he was a young Christian preacher at the a child preacher in the evangelical church and he said well people say people say they're they're voting this way because of abortion yes but that's not it hmm. it's it's about it's about race ah. he said it's it's just about race um it's about the mixing of races it's Chilling, chilling. Yeah. And 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 Isabel Wilkerson's book um, is also a chilling read. We're we're reading it together with Ebenezer Baptist, and there are five hundred of us, pretty much half and half, every Wednesday night for an hour Great. and a half together. It is <laughs> I'd like to be there. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. We'll uh, we'll try to sneak you in. So. Uh, Thanks for saying what you've just said from Balmer, um, because one of the central answers to the question, where are we now, is race. Race is playing a much bigger role. We thought we had progressed beyond tomorrow's the 56th anniversary of Bloody Sunday and the crossing of Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, we thought that once that breakthrough went all the way to Montgomery, and LBJ helped us to this new voter. We, we thought we were in a different place and we're circling back over and it is, um, it's gut-wrenching, it's heart-wrenching and it calls for some very serious reflection and reckoning. But the, the, there's a separate question and the question is where do we go from here? Uh, that was Martin Luther King's late, uh, last book. Uh, the subtitle was Chaos or Community. Um, 
Elaine, you're teaching left and right. You're you're lecturing. You're going to be in a Honolulu church tomorrow. Um, you, in my mind, are in the category of people who are thinking in new ways. So let me just pose that question to you. Where do we go from here? Well, I don't know the answer to that specifically, but you know, Ed, Christians have always pretended that what we teach and what we learn and what we believe comes straight from Jesus. Right. And that is the same whether you're a Pentecostalist, right. whether you're a Roman Catholic, you're teaching yes. exactly what Jesus taught, whether you're a Christian scientist or Russian Orthodox or a Baptist, we're only teaching exactly what Jesus taught. And there's this fantasy right. that there really is no time in between. And, you know, I'm a historian. I, what strikes me is, um, I think it's Baldwin who said, um, history isn't even over. It's not even past. Um, that was Faulkner. And Faulkner. That William Faulkner actually said that, but Jim Bal James Baldwin said Baldwin something said very it. similar. That, yeah, and he said history is alive in us. Yeah, History is alive in us. And, yes. and not only that, but the point isn't simply that. It's that what we call Christianity is a huge collection. Yeah. It's not a thing. It's not a single set of doctrines. It's not a certain kinds of teachings. It's a huge collection of prayers and rituals and poems and stories, um, reflections of all kinds, that legislation that comes from 2000 years of people all over the world. Right. So it, it's, it wouldn't, it won't survive into the next generation yet, unless it changes, unless it's revised, because it has to revise, it always does because it has to address the issues that the people in that generation are facing. And we're seeing people who are 20, people who are my students, deal in a different world in terms of understanding of race and gender and politics and the world. So we have to expect that, it, that we need to revise it yes. and look and, and notice the ways People are criticizing it and changing it and shifting it and dropping it, abandoning it. For what reasons and why and what's what's what speaks? Yes. And and really be be investigating that question. Indeed. Of what in this tradition is worth saving? People always say Christianity may not survive, and I think, well, does it deserve to? Right. Yeah. Is it worth surviving yes it will if it's not it won't right so what in it do we care about right what do we not care about what do we need to let go of or even really deliberately and painfully put aside which is things about privilege or yes yes the priority of one race over the other or one gender over one type of gender attitude over others or one type of nationalism over others. I mean, I think that's, that's where we go from here. We, we, 
pay attention to where this tradition matters and where it really doesn't, or where it's gunking up the works and making yeah. things worse. Our bishop here is saying that uh, we must shed three S's in Christianity, smallness, separateness, and superiority. Ah, that's hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> it truly is hard to do. But James Baldwin also said, we can begin again, which I think is the revision call that you've just articulated. Well, that's why actually when you speak of James Cone, he spent the last eight years of his life reading and studying James Baldwin. And he said his, his new trinity was Malcolm X, Martin King, and Jimmy Baldwin is what he would say. Because Baldwin in a way rejected Christianity because of the way he as a gay man, a black man, experienced it for all the right reasons. But he also engaged it the way Toni Morrison does, uh, the way James Cone did, the way, I mean, we don't have to be pretending that we're not Caucasian, whatever that is. Right, right. When people ask me my race, I just want to say human. You know, exactly. Of course. I, I'm, I'm not white any more than you are. But Indeed. anyway, that's, that's what we need to think about, I think. I'm breathing deeply. You've got me stirred up, Elaine. Um, <laughs> well, you I, lo I love talking about revising Christianity because my adult life has been a story of re-narrating my own Christian narrative because I could not abide. I, I, I was suffocating in that old narrative that I was assigned. And I, I love our transgender siblings who talk about being assigned a gender and then discovering their real gender inside. And I was assigned that toxic narrative and I discovered a new narrative born inside me. And my whole life has been about being trans something. Uh, well, exactly, Ed. And that's why when I visited your church in Los Angeles, a very big church, right. it was packed. Yes. Yes. It was full of enthusiastic people. Yes. It was a very live church. And so many Episcopal churches and others are dying. Yes. Many yes. of them are boredom. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Boredom. Save boredom. me from boredom. That... I, I hate boredom. So, <laughs> so, but that's why your church was full of vitality, because you had been revising it. Yes. And saying it and struggling yes. with it. Yes. And, and, and I think the people who care most about this tradition are doing that. Um, and I love the fact that you're reading that book uh, with the congregation. Yes. Ebenezer and St. Luke's. I'd, I'd really like to sit in on one of those if you can zoom sure. me in on Wednesday night. I'd love to. Absolutely. Sit. I will do because it. Because I think that's. That's a discussion worth having. I mean, when James Cone went south, he'd say, I don't want to talk to a bunch of white people. Um, let's get these congregations together. Yes, yes. It is so um, catalytic for marvelous thinking, and it's attracting people from all over the world. I, I do want to say, back to Cone's Trinity, 
of Malcolm X, MLK, and James Baldwin. My guest for next Sunday is a woman, Anna Tubbs, who has written a book called The Three Mothers. And it is an examination of the impact of the mothers of the Trinity. Oh, yes. I've yes. seen a review of her book. Yes. And it's, it's a fascinating read. And takes a look at the erasure of mothers and the erasure of women uh, in American history. Well, Elaine, we've come sadly to the end of our conversation. Too it, soon. <laughs> it's absolutely too soon, but, but we'll we, will, <laughs> we will continue forever. Um, thank you again for being with us last year. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your scholarship. Thank you for telling us that the early church was not this monochromatic, monocultural institution, but it was full of so much diversity. Thank you for raising up the Gospel of Thomas and all of the other gospels that you've done, non-canonical <laughs> gospels that you've brought in to our life. Thank you, thank you, thank you for everything. And thank you for being a revisionist. Well, thank you. Yes, I mean, I can't help being because I, I care about this tradition too. And those of us who do have got to to work with it that way. I'm so happy to see you doing it. Yes. And, uh, we'll do it forever. You. And we'll do it together. Yes. Thank you very much, Elaine. Thank you. And too. thank you everyone for joining us. It's been a wonderful time. We will have another wonderful conversation next Sunday. Be with us then. Bye-bye.